Let's pray, and we will get into God's word. Father, we thank you for your word that, that teaches us, that edifies us, that encourages us, that rebukes us when is needed. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that authored it and that has given it to us for life and godliness. So we pray that as we share from it this morning, you would encourage us and that you would be in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. There's some people in the Bible that I would have loved to maybe have lived their life and had their experiences. That if I were to trade places with them, I think it would be a pretty fun and exhilarating experience. Take Enoch, for example. Many people don't know about Enoch, but he was in the book of Genesis, and this is what it says about Enoch. Enoch walked with God and then was no more. I could take that, right? I could take that. If I'm walking with God and then I was no more, Enoch's one of the two people, right, that we know that didn't die a physical death and made it to heaven. I'm for that. Or even the other guy that had that same experience, Elijah, saw some pretty cool things. Now, granted, Elijah had his difficulties and his troubles, but seeing the prophets of Baal, their altar, you know, and all those 50 people praying and having it not answered and him praying to God and watching his go up in flames and then riding a chariot of fire to heaven, sign me up, I'll take it, all right? And then even, even King David, being one of the most powerful armies of the greatest country of Israel and living in the palace and being a king and having all of that, I could, I could trade places with David. Or even in the New Testament, you know, some of the apostles and the disciples, they got to walk for three years with Jesus and experience all of the miracles and his teachings and be with him. And then they founded the early church and they spread the gospel. I could trade places with some of those. But then there are other people that I would never want to walk two miles in their shoes or walk any steps in their shoes. Job, for example. He can have all of his riches and blessings and the suffering. I'll pass and trust God's word on that. Or Jacob. Jacob wrestled with God. I don't need any of that. I don't need to be walking with a limp. I'll trust Jacob's story and knowing that wrestling with God is not uh, what I want to do. And the last person that I want to talk about and what our sermon about is Joseph. Joseph's story is a great story, but... I'd rather live it through Joseph's experience than having to experience it for myself. And so we're going to cover the story of Joseph, and it spans 13 chapters, Genesis 37 to 50, so if you could please stand for the reading of God's word. Just kidding. (laughs) I just wanted to see your faces. All of you guys reach for the Bible, though, so I'm really proud. That'll be your assignment. You guys can be like the Bereans this week and go read Genesis 37 to 50. I am going to recap it and cover some of the highlights, and you're just going to have to trust that I've read the Bible and I know it, and you can fact-check me later on that because there's a lot of passages to cover. And so Joseph's story starts in chapter 37, and he, his great-grandfather is Abraham. So Joseph is of the line of Abraham. And his father is Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons, with Joseph being the youngest. But Joseph had the privilege of being the favored son. We know that Joseph had the coat of many colors, and so his brothers looked at him with envy and jealousy because here's the favored son, and he's got the special robe and the special coat. We know that Joseph had dreams, and Joseph had these dreams, and he shared them with his brothers, and every dream, he had two of them, and those dreams consisted of his brothers bowing down before Joseph. Now, I have a younger brother, just one, and if he came to me and shared with me a dream or a vision about him, me bowing down before him, I don't know that I would take that so nicely. I'd probably try to maybe knock him down a few levels, or, you know, we had our fights and we had our brotherly stuff, but I didn't do what Joseph's brothers did to him. 
Joseph's brothers heard these dreams and they heard Joseph's visions and they saw that he was the favored son of Jacob and decided, you know what? I've had enough of this. We've had enough of this. We're going to... So one day they're out tending their fields and they see Joseph coming to them. And so they hatch a plan and they devise a plan. And I've... Trust me, me and my brother have had some fights. He used to wear my clothes in high school that I worked hard for and bought and then he would wear them and make it look like he was cool. Like, we, I, we had our fights. But never once did I say, you know what? I'm going to devise a plan that I am going to murder my brother and then go back to my father and tell him that he was killed. That's what Joseph's brothers did to him. Think about the betrayal of family and the hurt of family. I've, we've had some jealousy, but I've never had jealousy to the point where I want to take someone else's life. But Joseph's brothers devise this plan and say, you know what, we're going to get rid of that boy once and for all. We're going to be done with him. And so then they think of it and they devise a better plan. You know, it's better for us not to have the blood on our hands so we'll catch him in this pit, leave him in this pit, pit for a wild animal to come eat him and then say, at least we can wipe our hands clean of it. Isn't it funny how we often justify sin or try to rationalize it like somehow we can remove ourselves from it? And so they say, you know what, that's a good plan. We're going to leave Joseph in this pit and then hopefully the wild animals will devour him as if that's any better form of death. And we'll go back to our father and share that his life was taken. So they set up a little trap. Joseph falls into the pit. They take his robe and they dip it in some blood and they go back to his father and say, look, your youngest son has died. And so there's Joseph alone in the pit, abandoned by his family, probably wondering, am I ever going to see my father again? And I don't know about you, but if that's going through my mind, I'm going, all right, God, <laughs> what about those promises? What about those dreams that my brothers were going to bow before me? Where? Where are you at right now? And so along come some people, and maybe Joseph thought, maybe here's my rescue. I'm going to be saved. They're going to uplift me from the pit. But unfortunately for Joseph, they were Egyptian slave traders. And so they rescue Joseph from the pit, but they shackle him and chain him, and they drive him into town. And the next thing you know, Joseph is up for sale. He's on the slave blocks being sold as a slave for the highest bidder. And so Joseph has now gone from his brothers bowing to him to being rejected by his family and left for dead to being saved to slave traders and on the slave blocks. And he is sold, and the person that buys him is named as Potiphar. We know that Potiphar takes Joseph in, and it says this in Genesis, that God was with Joseph in Potiphar's house. In fact, Potiphar saw God's hand upon Joseph's life, so much so that he promoted Joseph to second in charge. Potiphar placed Joseph in charge of his entire household. He was in charge of the other slaves. He was in charge of managing the affairs of Potiphar's house. And so Joseph, even though it's slavery, descended or ascended to a high position. But I don't know about you. I'm thinking, well, if I could do all of this for somebody else and I could be promoted to this all under for someone else, why can't I do this for myself? Still not a free man. Still can't do what I want to do. Still can't do what I choose to do. And so we know that Potiphar had a wife, and it says that multiple times that Potiphar's wife was attracted to Joseph. And she multiple times made attempts to have Joseph come sleep with her, to take, her, take Joseph to bed with him. And multiple times, over and over again, Joseph refused. Until one time comes that they're alone together, and Potiphar's wife grabs Joseph by the robe and says, come to bed with me. Now, we could stop right here and have a sermon all right here that Joseph does what any man or woman should do when sin comes and when temptation comes and when there's a chance and an opportunity. You know what Joseph does? It says he runs and he flees and he leaves the house. We could have a whole sermon there about what to do when sin comes and when temptation comes. We've got to follow the advice of Joseph and get out of the house. 
But the truth is, now you're probably thinking, right? Well, at least now, Joseph, he did what was right. He did what was honorable. He had integrity. It said that he didn't want to dishonor his master Potiphar by taking his wife. He didn't want to devalue God and his laws and his commands. And so he upheld them. He kept them. So surely, Joseph is going to be rewarded for this. Surely, Joseph, it's going to go to court, and surely they're going to vindicate Joseph, and God's going to come to Joseph's aid and rescue and say, well done, son. Good job. You kept the laws. You kept the commandments. You did what was right. And surely Potiphar's wife is going to be exposed for the lies and the wrongful conviction, and Potiphar's going to side with Joseph because his wife was in the wrong, and Joseph is going to be a free man, and this is his opportunity. But the story says that Potiphar took Joseph and threw him into prison. Once again, I don't know about you, but if I'm sitting in prison after making the right decision, after following God, and after doing what God asked me to do, and going, really? (laughs) This is what I get? Prison? This is what I get for following God. This is what I get for keeping your commands. But once again, it says that God was with Joseph in prison, and Joseph finds himself in prison with two of the king's Uh, servicemen, one the cupbearer and one the one that would taste the food. And here they are in prison with Joseph, being tossed in there by the king, and they've had these dreams. And they're troubled by their dreams. They don't know what these dreams mean. And here's Joseph sitting in prison, and now if it were me, I'm just like, whatever, I'll let the two crazy guys be crazy, and they can struggle with their dreams. I got my own life and my own things and my own situations to worry about. Not Joseph. Joseph knows that he's got a God-given ability and a God-given talent to interpret dreams. And so he pipes up, he speaks up and says, you know, aren't all dreams from God? And they say, well, yeah. He says, well, maybe I can help you with your dreams. And so Joseph properly, Joseph interprets the two dreams for the two men. Something to the effect of in three days, you are going to be released from prison and you're going to go back to the king's household and he will restore you to your position. That to the one and to the other, you will be restored and then your life will be taken. And so after three days, the dreams come true. The men are released back into the king's household, and Joseph surely got to be thinking, hey, they're going to remember me. They'll remember that I was the one that interpreted these dreams for them. They'll remember I was the one that helped them figure out what was going on. Surely this will be my break. Finally, I'll be released from prison, and I can go back to my father's house, and I can have my life back, and I'll be free at last. But unfortunately, it says, I think if you go to the next slide, it says, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And it says, for the tune of two years that Joseph was forgotten in prison. So now we have a man rejected by his family, thinking that he was dead, sold into slavery, not a free man, but did what was right, did what was honorable, did what was integrity, falsely accused and thrown into prison, and now forgotten for two years. And I got to be thinking, come on, God, (laughs) where are you at? Do you remember me down here? Remember those dreams that you gave me when I was a young boy? Where are you? Until one day, two years later, the king of Egypt is now having some dreams. And he is unsure of what his dreams mean, and no one can figure it out. They're calling all people to come and try to interpret these dreams, and no one can figure it out. And then finally, the light bulb goes off in the cupbearer's head. Hey, I remember two years ago, I was in prison with this guy. He can interpret dreams. And so they send for Joseph, and Joseph comes, and the king shares his dream. And Joseph says, well, I'll tell you what your dream means. It means that for seven years, 
Your nation is going to experience abundance and prosperity, and your crops are going to grow like they never have before. And you're to appoint someone, and you're to take someone to store up one-fifth of everything that is produced. Because after those seven years, there's going to come a famine of seven years. That famine will be so severe and so harsh that you won't even remember the good years. And so the Pharaoh, the king, he hears this and says, you know what? It's clear that God is with you. It's clear that God has favored you. And it's clear that you have the wisdom of God. So you know I'm going to place you, Joseph, as second in charge. And it says that not even a head will be lifted or a step will be taken without your command, Joseph. The only one greater than you in my entire kingdom will be me. And so Joseph, in the moment of hours, goes from being in prison to being second in charge of a nation and responsible for storing up all of these resources. And so Joseph does exactly what the Lord said and what the Lord commanded, and for seven years they experience abundance. And Joseph is storing up as much food, as much seed, as much resources as possible. It says so much so that they stopped counting because it was that much. But just as the Lord promised, after seven years, then comes the famine. And then you start to see people from other nations that are in drought and in severity and hungry start to come to the nation of Egypt, and they start to come to Joseph, and they start to beg and ask for food. And now other nations are being blessed because of Joseph's faithfulness and because of Joseph's position and because of Joseph's responsibility. So much so that his own brothers from Jacob, 10 of them come to him, and they bow down before him, and they say, please feed us. And I'll cut the chase here. Joseph puts them through a series of events. It says they're all bowing before him, and the first couple of times that they see Joseph, they don't even recognize him. It's been 20 years at this point. They don't even recognize that the same man that they left for dead, that they are convinced is dead, is now the one that they're bowing to and asking for food. And I don't know about you, but the moment that those, my brother would have come to me after doing that to me, I would have said, <laughs> here's my chance. Here's my chance for revenge. You're going to pay for what you've done for me. You know that I had to live in slavery? You know that I was left in prison because of your sins and because of your wickedness, and now you want to come and beg me for food? No way. But this is one of the most remarkable things. You know, Joseph doesn't say that. Those aren't the words that he utters. In fact, he finally has to reveal himself to his brothers and say, you know, I'm Joseph. I'm the brother that you have left. Could you imagine the shock and the look on their face? And you know what it says? Joseph says to them, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves. What? Joseph's now consoling them. He's now counseling them. He's now telling them not to beat themselves up. They haven't even ushered any apologies or repented yet. And Joseph's telling them, don't worry, don't be distressed, don't beat yourselves up. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land. And for the next five years, there'll be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Later on, it happens again where Joseph's brothers are worried that he's going to get payback and he's going to um, exact some revenge. And Joseph says this to him, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. 
And so that's the story of Joseph, and I want to talk about three things that we today can learn from the story of Joseph. And the first is this, is that God keeps his promises. Joseph's great-grandfather was Abraham, and Abraham was given three promises. You're going to have a great multitude of people, all nations. You're going to be so much that you can't even count them. More than the stars, more than the sand, your people are going to fill the earth. Number two, you're going to have land, and I'm going to give you the best land, the promised land that's overflowing in abundance. And number three, because of those two things, all nations will be blessed because of my promises to Abraham. And up until Joseph's point, we don't see very much of those promises coming true. We know that Isaac had his moments, and we know that Jacob had his moments, but we still haven't yet seen the fulfillment of some of those promises made to Abraham. But that starts to change the moment that Joseph steps onto the scene. How about a man that went from prison to being second in charge, storing up food for all nations, and then all nations are coming to him so that they can have food and sustenance and life? I don't know about you, but that sounds like all nations being blessed by the line of Abraham. Think about what would have happened if Joseph wasn't there and Joseph wasn't in charge and Jacob's family comes and bows before some other ruler and that ruler doesn't have God's kingdom and God's mindset in mind. And he says, I'm not giving any other country any other food. We were wise. We stored up. We had abundance. We want to save and preserve ourselves. Jacob's family could have been wiped out and could have been done right there, and the promise to Abraham would have been gone because his line would have no longer lived on. But Joseph says, you know, what you guys intended for evil, I have intended for good, and they find a place, and they find food, and they find sustenance, and I don't know about you, but that's where the prosperity of his family starts to grow and expound, and that's another fulfilled promise to Joseph. And so the same rings true for us today, is that there's some promises that have been made to us, and God's promises are not like we keep promises. We think of promises. We almost expect a promise to be broken. We, I, I don't know about you, but I place no hope. When someone says, I promise, I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> there's maybe a handful of five people that when they say they promise me something, I think that they're actually going to follow through on that promise. And so we're so used to broken promises and bo- broken contracts and broken agreements, and we think, ah, but guess what? God's not up in heaven going, oh, you know what? I have eight million other promises, or eight billion other promises to keep, so sorry, I forgot about yours, Dino. Or, you know, I just lost track. You know, he's not like that. Is that God has made some promises to you, and just like he fulfilled his promises to Abraham, he's going to fulfill those promises to you. And so what are some of those promises? How about Hebrews 13.5? I will never leave you or forsake you. I don't know about you, but that's a promise that I want to stand on. No matter what season, no matter what situation, no matter what's going on in my family, no matter what's going on with my health, I can stand on the promises that I haven't been left and I haven't been forsaken and he's always going to be with me. How about Isaiah 54, 17? No weapon against you will prevail. No attack of the enemy, no plan of Satan is going to overcome you or you will not. No, no weapon against you will prevail. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation... I will not tempt you beyond what you can bear. And when the temptation comes, I will give you a way out. The things of life are not so powerful that they will overcome me that God does give me a way out. How about Philippians 4.19? I have supplied all, through Christ, I have supplied all that is needed for righteousness in Christ. Or 2 Peter 1.3, all that is needed for life and godliness, I have given you. That's a promise that I can stand upon. That's a promise 
that grounds me. Or how about Revelations where it says, there will be a day where there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, and you'll stand upon in heaven and you'll be worshiping with the angels. And the light and momentary afflictions that you feel now will not compare to the glory that is revealed into you. I don't know about you, but some days the only thing that I have to stand on and the only thing that I have to go by are the promises of God. That's the only thing that I got to hope in. And I can stand upon them knowing that they will come true. And so in your pits and in your prisons and in your abandonment of family and in your pain and you're feeling like forgotten, what you need to cling to are the promises of God that he will do what he has started. Point number two is this, and I find this one of the most remarkable things about Joseph, is that in each place that he got to, in his imprisonment and in his slavery, Joseph still did what was right despite the circumstances of his life. And so the second point is we have to do what is right despite what the circumstances are, despite what is going on around us, despite what may have happened to us, despite how they may have treated us, despite how wrong they may be. I have a responsibility to God to do what is right regardless. But sometimes we look at following God like a job. How much does it pay? What are the benefits? How much vacation do I get? What do I get in response from this God? If I'm faithful and if I'm good, how is this going to pay off for me in the end? What do I get out of it? Another author was interviewing three runners all running 5Ks, and he was asking him, what is your motivation behind running? Why do you run? So he asked the first guy, and the first guy says, I run because my father died of a heart attack at the age of 54, and I want to live a long life to retire and see my grandchildren grow up. The second runner responded, I run because I can eat anything I want when I run, and I still don't gain weight. Running also makes me nice and tired, so I sleep soundly at night. And the third runner says this, when I run, my legs soar over the ground. The wind brushes my face. My heart beats like a slow, heavy thunder in my chest, and I feel alive. You see the motivation behind the first runner and why he ran? He ran out of fear. He ran out of fear of what might happen if he did not run. He feared that his life might end short like his father, so fear was the motivation behind his running. The second runner, why did he run? He ran for the rewards and benefits of running. He could eat whatever he wanted when he ran. He could sleep nice at night. But the third runner, why did he run? He ran for the love of running. And so the truth is, is that should we have a healthy fear of God and should some of us fear God more? By all means. But if the only reason you're following God and you're pursuing God is you're afraid of what might happen if you don't, you're missing out on a whole lot of God. And you'll start to look and picture a God that is angry and mad and that you're just afraid of. And so if the only reason that you're following God is out of fear, you're missing out. And if the only reason that you're following God is for the benefits, well, you know, I can get health and I can get wealth and I can get no problems in my life. And for the benefits of it, you'll very quickly be angry and disappointed at that God whenever the moment that sickness comes, whenever the moment that you lose your job, whenever something's going on in your family, because you'll think, well, God, I did this. I, I deserve better. Where are you? I've, I've read my Bible. I've showed up to church, and I've served, and I've... And you run through your list, and like you can somehow control and twist God into the things that you want him to do. 
But the third motive comes from the truest reason, the truest sense of why we should follow God is this. The third runner ran for love of running. And I follow God and I pursue God and I walk after God. Why? Because I love who he is. I see his character. I see his beauty. I see his laws and his commands and my heart adores. And I want to follow because I see who he is and that's enough. I may never get another thing in life. I might not get another benefit, but he is still worthy because of who he is. I find it remarkable that David said in Psalm 27 this, the one thing that I ask and the one thing that I seek is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And so he later says in Psalm 88, it was better is one day in the presence of the Lord. It was better one day in his beauty and worshiping him than it was a thousand elsewhere. Think about that. David was the richest, most successful king. He had the biggest palace He could have went on vacation anywhere. He could have taken cruises anywhere. He was the most powerful person. He had the strongest army. And he didn't didn't want to spend a thousand days in his position, in his power, or touring the country, or living in his kingdom or palace. He said, you know, the one thing that I ask is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That was better than everything else. It says, the soul that loves God seeks no other reward than that God whom it loves. I was too sissy to put it up there, but I'll actually say it because I feel like I should. It also says this, the soul that loves God seeks no other reward than that God whom it loves. Were the soul to demand anything else, then it would certainly love that other thing and not God. So point number one, God keeps his promises. Point number two, we follow God and we've We worship him because of who he is. Think about Joseph. His circumstances tell us that it wasn't all about the blessings that Joseph got. Here he was in slavery, still did what was right. Why? Because his eyes were fixed on who God was and he knew God's goodness and he knew his character and his nature and he still knew he was worth following despite his bondage, despite his imprisonment, despite the betrayal and the hurt of family. And so point number three is that God is at work behind the scenes of your life orchestrating things And that is simply the best thing possible. If you were to give Joseph the movie script of what his life was going to look like and he was able to read out all of the details and know what it was going to be like, I don't know about you, but I'm saying find another actor. (laughs) Give it to DiCaprio. He likes suffering and pain and hurting. Give it to him, all right? (laughs) If he was able to see it all written out, he'd pray, we know God. (laughs) I like the dreams. I like my special coat. I like being second in charge of a whole nation. Can we uh, skip the in-between? Can we cut out some of that? How many of us are like that? We look back on the things in our life and go, well, I did not expect it to go like that. Or I would not have written it like that. Or I would not have planned that. I didn't anticipate it being like that. And I don't want to minimize Joseph's pain. He probably didn't feel at times that God was working. Imagine being betrayed by your family. They hated you so much, they wanted you dead. Some of us have probably felt the sting in the betrayal of family or friends or people around us. I think of us, some of us can relate to that. What about being falsely accused and sitting in prison for something you didn't do? Having your reputation marred by someone else? Or what imagine sitting alone in a prison cell for two years wondering in this cold, dark place, where are you, God? What in the world is going on? You ever been there? Alone, cold, confused, hurt? 
But this is the remarkable thing, is that when you're in your darkest places and you're in your most painful moments and your most agonizing defeats, you know what the word says? It says in each place that Joseph was, it says that God was with Joseph. And so I rest assured that in my pains and in my hurts and in my moments where I don't know what's going on and I can't see the light, I have the assurance that God is with me. Despite my feelings, despite what I see, despite all of that, the truth rings that God is with me. I think one of the coolest things is that in the story of Elijah, after he has seen his God answer his prayer and God literally rain down fire from heaven for him, the very next day, we find Elijah fleeing the country out in the middle of the desert, and he bows down on his knees and he says, God, I'm done. Please take my life. I think one of the coolest things is God doesn't say, Elijah, you bonehead, remember what I did yesterday? Or Elijah, you fool, have you forgotten what I've done? It says that God sends an angel, Elijah, arise and eat the next day. Elijah, arise and eat. And for 40 days, he brings food and water to Elijah in the moment of his pain, in the middle of his hurt, and he meets Elijah right where he's at and says, arise and eat, and he takes care of him right where he is. And we got to remember that God is the same God for us, that in our pits, in our valleys, and in our depression where we don't want to go on, he meets us there and he says, arise and eat. The other thing that I think is really important to note and that we often get twisted in Western um, church is this, is that when things go wrong or bad, or they're not as we had planned them, or they're a little bit difficult, what that is not is a sign of God's hand or removal from our lives. We are too quickly to relate. I'll just be honest, man, like if something goes wrong with my car or something, I can't find my car keys, I'm like, come on, God, you're really going to do this to me? You know, it could be something as small as that, and I'm just wondering like, oh, come on, God, you're going to do this to me today? But somehow we equate, like, We equate the things going wrong or the difficulties or the challenges or problems in our home life or with God's hand being removed. He must not be blessing me. He must not be watching over me. He must not love me. And we think the telltale sign of God's love and blessing is wealth, health, and zero problems. As if God's goodness or blessing is contingent upon that. Well, I'll tell you the truth. I live in a dingy three-bedroom apartment and drive a 2004 rusted caravan. He must not love me as much as he loves some of you if that were true. The most godly woman in my life has had cancer three times, lost a husband at 49, lost a son at 36, has another husband on hospice care. What? God doesn't love my grandma? That ain't true. Just because there's difficulties and just because there's challenges doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. proof? Romans eight twenty eight to 30. It says, and as we know in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, we struggle with this verse because it's like, but what it's not saying is this, is God is not calling all things that have happened in your life good. He's not looking at Joseph's life and going, you know what? Your brothers, I'm so proud of them. That was the best thing possible. No, that grieved God's heart. That was sin. That broke God's heart. He's not looking at Potiphar's wife and going, well done, I I approve of that. No, 
We know that God is not the author of sin. We know that he is not calling all things good. We just know that he can take all things and he can take all the ugliness and he can push it and he can urge it and he can force it into something good for his glory. So the final thing of Joseph's life wasn't the betrayal of his brothers and it wasn't being falsely accused in prison. All that verse means is it means that God stands over that and says, you know what, I'm bigger than what people can do. I am bigger than the sin in your life. I am bigger than the problems in your life and I am bigger than any betrayal or hurt that you face and I stand over that and I can make something good out of even the most evil and wicked thing. He took our sin, the most ugly thing that you could ever think of, separation from God, not doing what God commanded and wished. He took our sin and turned it into the beauty of the cross. So we can certainly take the ugliness and the pain and the things in your life and cause and force them to work for his good. He's not saying everything that has happened is good or applauding every decision. He's saying in despite of that, I can make something good out of this. And you want a proof of God's blessing and you want assurance that God is with you? It's not in your wealth, it's not in your health, it's not in having zero problems. The greatest blessing and the greatest telltale sign if you want to know that God is at work in your life is this. Is he using the events and the things of your life to conform you to the image of Christ? Read it right there. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that they might be the firstborn among brothers and sisters. He predetermined that his children, the biggest blessing, the biggest thing that he could ever do for them is make them like Jesus. So are the situations in your life making you more like Jesus? Are the struggles in your marriage causing you to conform to the image of Christ? Are the problems in your family causing you to get on your knees and become more like Christ? That's the greatest blessing, is that he would make you like his son. If you want anything more than that, you have to go somewhere else. <laughs> because Jesus is, or Christ and God is all about making you conform to the image of his son. You want blessings? How about that the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you and then he makes you full of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control. Because guess what? When I have those things, it won't matter the money. It won't matter my health. Why? Because I'll have the fruit of the Spirit living and dwelling in me. That's the true blessing of knowing God. And so as the worship team comes, we're gonna close uh, in a song and I would like to close like this. The story of Joseph is a story because of one man's obedience because of Joseph's obedience and because of Joseph's willingness to follow God, all nations and all people were blessed. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like a foreshadow of Christ to me. Because of one man's obedience, because of one man's willingness to follow God and pursue God, yet while we were sinners, he died and went to the cross. Because of his obedience, we are all able to be blessed. Not by our obedience, not because of our works, but because of his obedience. So the only thing that really left to be asked is this, where have I placed my faith? Where have I placed my obedience? I have one quote. It says, behind my life, the weaver stands and works his wondrous will. I leave it in his all-wise hands and trust his perfect skill. We sang the song a couple weeks ago. It's called Waymaker. And it's part of the song that makes me really mad because it says, you know, even when I can't see it, you're working. And even when I can't feel it, you're working. Yeah, well, God, I'd like to see it sometimes. <laughs> I'd like to feel it sometimes. 
But the beauty is that despite what I might see and what I might feel and how far I might wonder how far I might get it wrong, there's a God that is working behind the scenes and doing something in me. And so I'm going to ask you guys to stand to your feet and to worship with us and to sing it with us. Is that to trust and to place your obedience in the God that is working behind the things in your life for your good to conform you to the image of his son. And that there's not possibly anything better in all of life than that right there. So Father, we thank you. Lord, we don't minimize the hurts and the pains and the valleys and the situations that we find ourselves in. But in them, we look to you to make a way. Father, we know that you keep your promises and we know that you cause all things to work together for your good. So even when we can't see it and even when we can't feel it, you're working and you're worthy of our worship. Your goodness does not change despite our circumstances. So we look to it and we cling to it. In Jesus' name. You are here, moving in our midst. I worship you. I worship you. You are here, working in this place. I worship you. I worship you. You are here moving. You are here moving in our midst. I worship you. I worship you. You are here. You're working in this place. I worship you. Waymaker, Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. Waymaker, Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God. Touching every heart, you are here. Touching every heart, I worship you. I worship you. You are here, healing every life. I worship you. Turning lives around, turning lives around. I worship you. I worship you. Mending every heart. You are here. Mending every heart. I worship you. Maker, we make a miracle work, promise keeper, 
together but Lord we go in your peace and in your promise and your grace that you are working among us so let us worship you when it comes Thursday and it's difficult and it's hard let us worship you despite the circumstances or the things going around we worship you so let us see where you are in every season of our lives and let worship arise go in his grace and peace. And in Jesus' name, we all said, 